Welcome to Globally Speaking, sponsored by Moravia and Nimsy Insights. Are you ready to dive into the most critical issues impacting language localization today? Globally Speaking is an independent program designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who's engaged in global communications. Your hosts for Globally Speaking are Renato Beninato and Michael Stevens. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. And now, here are Renato and Michael. I'm Michael Stevens. And I'm Renato Beninato. And today on Globally Speaking, we are going to look at translation from a different perspective than we have on any other episode. That's true, Michael. We're actually not going to have one episode. This conversation was so good that we decided that we're going to have two episodes in a row, and you're not going to have to wait two weeks to listen to the second part of our conversation with Mark Polizzotti. Wow. So we think this is so good that people aren't going to want to wait two weeks and they're going to listen again next week. But let me tell you why it's so good. So Mark, as you were going to say, is a translator. He has translated literary works from French into English, over 30 books. But he wrote a book called Sympathy for the Traitor, which is the name of this episode. And I just happened to bump into a review of his book on The Guardian, and I couldn't wait to download it on Kindle and eat it up. And I shared it with you. You shared it with me, and I tore through this book. He looks at some ancient arguments related to translation. It's captivating. It's humorous. Extremely intellectual. And I think our viewers will appreciate the conversation we had with Mark and the book itself. It was a little bit of an adventure to find him, but uh, he's here. So why don't we let him introduce himself and let's hear the conversation that we had with Mark. I'm Mark Palazzotti. I'm a professional translator, a publisher of the uh, publisher of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and also a writer. Uh, I've been a translator for about 40 years, publisher of about 30 years, a writer for about just the same amount of time. What I love about all three of them is that it feeds my, my book nerdiness in every single way. And the other great thing about it is that every single one of those came about completely by accident, which I'm convinced is the only way to do things in life. Well, that drives me into the first question. How did you become a translator? It's usually by chance. What's your story? My story is that I started learning French when I was in junior high school, mostly because there really wasn't much of a choice in my junior high school. We had French or Spanish and I sort of tossed a coin, turned out French. And uh, at first, it didn't really appeal to me all that much. But then at a certain point, it occurred to me that if I actually put some effort into it, I might actually learn a foreign language that I could do something with. So I started getting a little more serious about it. And the other part was that when I was a kid, my uncle, who had been in the army, had been to Paris. And I just remember him one day saying, completely apropos of nothing that I could remember, that Paris was a dirty city. And I remember thinking, well, that sounds great. I want to go there. <laughs> so we had this city that I could get, this dirty city I could go to, and we had this language I was studying that allowed me to get there. And so when I was 17, I went over for the first time and spent a year between high school and college in Paris. So Mark, just so we can have our French speaking, and especially those in Paris who listen to this podcast, continue listening to us. Did you find the city to be dirty, like your uncle told you? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Paris had these wonderful smells. I remember that my art teacher, before I went over, who I was very close to, my high school art teacher, who was also a great lover of Paris, who said, oh, you're going to love it. It has these wonderful smells. And this is absolutely true. This, you know, you, you begin to realize that coming out of the Northeast of the United States, you're living in this kind of sanitized world in a, in a funny way. And suddenly it felt like life was just seeping up through the streets, through the asphalt, through the, you know, in the air, in this wonderful way. It wasn't at all unpleasant. It was, it was wonderful. So maybe that's what my uncle meant by a dirty city. But to me, this is just, you know, it was life. It was aroma. It was fragrance. It was, it was vibrancy. So I, you know, needless to say, completely fell in love with it and have gone back and lived there several times since and wouldn't change that for, for the world. And of course, that was the place that I, that I inadvertently started to translate. So did you start translating from English into French, from French into English? What was your journey? French into English. So what happened, I was taking these Latin courses, literature courses at the university. And the professor who I'd gotten to know a little bit from talking to had invited this novelist who was on the syllabus. And uh, the novelist had written this very experimental 1970s sort of post-Joyce Finnegan's Wake type of novel. And so reading it before the class, I'm sitting there, you know, and it had word games and puns and little pictograms and, you know, all, all kinds. Of, it was totally nuts. And I'm reading this thing thinking this would be insane to try to translate. So anyhow, the course came, the author came, he gave his spiel. And afterward, I was chatting with the professor for a second. And he said, you know, I have a car. I can drop you off in town tonight because he knew I lived fairly far away from campus. And I said, fine. And he said, but Maurice, the, the novelist, I also have to drop him. So I suddenly found myself at 17 in the car with this published author who was about you know 50 years old who knew all of the great intellectual stars of the time and hobnobbed with them all and sort of sweating bullets and thinking, my God, here's this real author. And we stopped on the way for a coffee. And uh, Maurice, Maurice Hodge was the, the author's name, liked his whiskey. And he's sitting there with his whiskey and I've got my little tea. And I'm sitting across on this man and think, I have to say something because I'm going to look like a total idiot if I don't. And the only thing I could think to say was, how interesting it would be to translate your book. Oh, wow. Which, of course... I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to do it. I had no intention of doing it. It was just, you know, one of those conversation starters. I figured he would just kind of let it go. But in fact, his head snapped up and he sort of said, great idea. Why don't you do it? And that was, that was it. So, you know, I was like, okay. So we got back into the car. We get into town. I tell the professor, you could drop me here at the, you know, the nearest metro. And Maurice turned around and said, no, no, no. We're having a dinner party at the house. Why don't you come along? Okay. So we go to his house and there are all of his friends who included all these people I'd been reading in college, you know, Philippe Solers was there and Roland Barthes was there and, you know, all these sort of great literary stars hanging out in his living room eating fried chicken. I remember that. And he kept coming back during the course of the evening saying, you're going to do it? You're going to translate the book? You're going to translate the book? I said, oh, sure. You had to say yes we'll at try. that point. <laughs> you had to say yes at that point, right? So I had six more months of my stay in Paris, and I dutifully went home, and I started working on it, and he and I would get together and periodically and check out the new pages, and he'd give me pointers. And, you know, in fact, my initial instinct about this book was absolutely right, which is it was completely untranslatable. And, of course, I did this terrible, terrible job, but the bug bit, and from that point on, it, you know, there was, there was no turning back. And Maurice and I actually became friends and remained friends until he died 20 years later. And I ended up, in fact translating his first novel, which was much more approachable. And, you know, I was able to do a better job at that point, And that was published. Wow. That was my, my start. I love the element of while the translation may have been a failure, 
the actual project itself was a complete success because you had recognized the challenges and you were able to start thinking about the limits of translation itself. Oh, it was, it was full of limits. I can tell you that much. Uh, But then, you know, I I started university the year after that. And during that time, I actually was able to take some translation courses and seminars. There's one wonderful seminar with a poet and translator named Rika Lesser, who really got me to start thinking about translation, not as something that you do on a whim, but, you know, as as something real, uh, you know, real pursuit and a real literary pursuit. And at that point, you know, it started to fall in place and it started to make a little bit more sense. And then ever since then, I've, I've been very lucky in the sense that I've known people who have asked me to do translations for them. And, you know, little by little, you build a portfolio. So your book is called Sympathy for the Traitor. Of course, mm-hmm. you're playing on the words of the traditore traditore, that there are many schools of thoughts of, from the translation is impossible, that true translation is impossible to the translation is freedom and all kinds of positions in between. In your book, you discuss a lot of this, the translator as a co-author, as, a, mm-hmm. as a, another writer. How did you get to that point? Well, I mean, I realize, of course, that's not a, a view that everyone is going to share, but I start from the proposition that all writing is language. So one could very reasonably object that who is this translator to think that, you know, he or she is a, an equal partner, as a, you know, as a creative artist, it's really the writer who's the creative artist. The writer has to make up not only the, the words, but has to make up the characters, the plot, the intention, the whole thing. And that's all true. But that character, that plot, the dialogues are all conveyed through words, through language. And the writer has to grapple with them in a particular way to bring whatever the intention is across. And the translator basically has to work with the same kind of material. It's also language, and it's also grappling in a similar way with trying to understand what the writer is trying to convey and then figuring out how to bring that across into another language, another culture, another readership. So what I'm really trying to get away from is a very old prejudice that goes back centuries and centuries that posits that the original is the thing to pay attention to and the translator, the translation is a kind of a servant or a ballot of literary work. Therefore, in a subordinate position, therefore, inferior by nature, and that the translation will never be as good as the original. It will never really be a faithful representation of the original. Personally, I think that that's a very limiting way of looking at translation. I love that you mentioned that, because I remember I had a personal experience with uh, Jorge Luis Borges. I Uh read a story by him, a short story in English in college, and Mm -hmm. I loved the short story. And then I said, wow, this is great in English. It must be fantastic in Spanish. So <laughs> I looked for the book, and this I'm talking about the late 70s and when you, you don't have internet and you don't buy the book on Amazon. You have to look mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. bookstores and try to find, and I found the original book, and the original was worse. Oh. I didn't feel the same connection with the Spanish original. And uh, it's, it's very interesting that you bring this point because that was before I became a professional translator. That was something that stuck with me. It's that sometimes the actual translation can be as good or even better than the original. Well, you know, Borges was a great fan of translation. And one of the things that he particularly liked about having his own work translated into English is that he felt it was leaner and leaner. 
Yes. I've got a quote in the book where he, you know, he's saying, I'm embarrassed by my language. I'm embarrassed by how florid it is. I'm, you know, how Latinate it is. Make me tough and make me skinny and gaucho and macho, you know. Mm-hmm. Basically, he was saying, take what I'm trying to do that my own language does not have the resources to do fully in the way that I'd like it to, to happen. But English can, you know, and a good English translation will bring me closer. I, re- I just remembered the name. The short story was The Lottery of Babylon, which is a mm-hmm. great short yep. story. But he was, Borges was an Anglophile. So yes. but there is this whole element. Yes, Michael. No, you're, I mean, this ties into these two sort of guiding principles you have about translators. The first being that they are a creative artist in and of themselves. And in mm-hmm. your book, you have this great quote. Because you're standing on some shoulders as you make this case, right? The Spanish translator Gregory Rabasa mm-hmm. saying that the ideal writer is a translator. All he has to do is write plot, theme, characters, and all of the other essentials have been provided. And I love this ending. So he can just sit down and write. Absolutely. I mean, Rabasa was one of the great, not only one of the great translators, but one of the great advocates of translation. And someone who had incredible respect for his authors. Of course, he worked with some of the greatest Spanish language authors of his time. And we owe it to him in the English-speaking world to have brought us Garcia Marquez and, you know, and so many of the other great, great works that have now become these touchstones of, of contemporary Latin American literature. But he also recognized that the translator was a creative artist in his or her own right, and that when he translated a book, he was putting as much of himself into it as he was drawing out the original. And of course, there's that other great quote from him that I love, which is that when he was originally approached about the possibility of translating 100 Years of Solitude, the question to him was, is your Spanish good enough? And his answer was, no, the real question is, is my English good enough? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. I once, I was at a book festival in Boston and there was a session by Orhan Pamuk, the Nobel Prize uh, mm-hmm. winner from a literature Nobel Prize from Turkey. And I had the chance to have a quick conversation with him and ask him, how does it feel to be an author? You're an author in your language, but most of your readers, to be universal, need to read you in translation. And he right. said, I wouldn't be anybody without my translators. And uh, <laughs> Very seldom people realize, and I don't know, maybe you have a more updated statistic. Some years ago, I read that in the United States, only 3% of all book sales are translations. Well, you go to other countries like France and Spanish-speaking countries where the consumption of translated literature is much, much higher. It's close to half of of all the, the readings. And you being a translator here in the United States, why do you think that there is not more consumption for translation? Well, I think it's a couple of reasons. I mean, to answer your question, the, the good news is that that 3% is creeping up. But I mean, creeping up to, I think these days, it's about 5 or 6. So it's creeping up very, very slowly as people do become a little bit more aware of translation. I think it's a couple of things. I think, for one, the writing industry, if you can call it that, in this country is extremely active. And there's just so many books published in English to begin with that is sort of hard to keep up, just speaking as a publisher. The other thing is that we are a fairly insular society, I think. Part of it that has to do with geography. We've got this huge landmass, and, you know, on one top we're we're skirted by another large country that is mostly English-speaking, except for the French part, and to the south we have Mexico and Latin America. But by and large, you know, we're kind of surrounded by ourselves, which is very different from being these little nation-states in Europe that for many years had to be 
extremely aware of all of their neighbors just as a matter of survival. And because of that, you become a lot more conscious of what the other person's culture, the other person's language, and the other person's way of, of living is. So it doesn't surprise me that Europe, for example, would have a much more active interest in what's going on outside of its borders. Of course, the other thing is, again, like it or not, the United States still exerts a, a huge fascination culturally on a number of other countries. So a lot of what happens here that we just take for granted because it was written in English, it was published in the States, has to be translated into foreign languages in Europe, France, and Spain, and Italy. But I think also that the, there is less, I hate to put it this way, but there's less product, homegrown product, so that they do rely a little bit more in, in just publishing terms in bringing in oh. other... I imagine that there is not a lot of Icelandic literature and they need to read a lot. And they're, they're For one example, yeah. yeah. One of the peoples that has the highest rating of, of uh, reading, the uh, highest consumption of literature is Iceland. This gets onto the topic, though, of translation being a bridge between cultures and nations, similar to mm. like travel as people are exposed to other cultures. And I think you talk about even the metaphor of translation being taking one holy relic from a place to another place. Well, that's what the word originally meant. Yeah. It was to bring a saint to heaven without the intervention of death. Essentially, you, the, the saint was translated to heaven by, you know, sort of a, a holy ascension. And that was the original meaning of the word translation. Wow. And then it became more the, the shifting of, you know, the ferrying of languages from one linguistic shore to another, essentially. But, you know, the notion of bridges and bridges of cultures, is, it's a tricky one, because on the one hand, of course, yes, there are all kinds of writing expressions by all sorts of authors that if you can't speak that language, if you can't read that language, you would never be able to appreciate were it not for translation. So there's that. But at the same time, you know, we were talking about Icelandic or, let's say, the, the quote-unquote minority languages, languages that are spoken by a comparatively small population in the world. Generally speaking, their words, their culture get out through translation. The flip side of that is that translation can also be an agent of extermination because the more a culture depends on translation, the more a language depends on translation to get out what it has to say, the more that language begins to atrophy and die. And you see, you know, for example, this happens with things like Celtic and Gaelic and Catalan, you know, which are still in existence. And there are very fervent proponents of trying to keep the flame alive, but it's getting to be harder and harder. You know, it, it, it does become subsumed by the, the, the larger languages in the world. So let me go into this other line of conversation. Every technical translator's dream is to translate literature, is to translate art. Mm -hmm. And they think that there is some glamour around it. Yet, I see that you actually don't make a living off of translation. How is this glamour of literary translation, what does it mean to you? Because that's your job. It is my job. It, you're right. It's not, what I, it's not my living. It's not my livelihood. There are people who do live as literary translators and work all the time and, and publish several books a year. I'm fortunate in the sense that I have another day job that allows me to be a little bit more picky about the, the work that I take on. It's, you know, only really the books that I'm interested in and I really want to do or feel a connection with. I'm not, I'm not obliged to take something on just simply for the money. As I think we were saying earlier, I would again be just a little bit cautious with that hard and fast distinction between glamorous literary translation and technical translation, because ultimately it's all translation and I think it's extremely important to try to get as much experience as you possibly can. For example, there was one time when I worked, uh, years ago, I worked on a, 
a huge database that had been brought in from Canada. And it was a machine translation database. And it was supposed to be for a trademark company. Every single product, service, item, anything that you could possibly imagine that would have a noun or a description attached to it had to be listed for trademark reasons. And so what they've done is they've given this to a machine translation and there was a huge, just columns and columns and columns of text. And then on the side, our job as the editors of this translation were to basically read it and kind of refine it. And I mean, you were just constantly coming across all sorts of totally wacky non sequiturs. And I, the one that I remember that, that always made me laugh was there was this one hardware store that was listing all of its products. And so you had nuts, bolts, widgets, and strawberries. I'm saying, strawberries? What the hell is that? And what I realized was that the French word fraise, which means strawberry, but it also means drill bit, had been, of course, picked up by the computer as the first translation that it would think of, which was strawberries. Uh-huh. So you've got all this hardware, and suddenly you're in a fruit stand. And you know, this is this is where I thought maybe human translators are not, oh. you know, are not superfluous quite yet. Yeah, that can get you into some real taxonomy issues. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a lot of people searching for drill bits happy to find strawberries in other cultures. Exactly, or vice versa. I would think. Yeah. This podcast was produced by Burns Three Sixty. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes or any number of podcast portals. You should check out our other episodes on globallyspeakingradio.com where you can find transcripts and old notes for every show. You can also listen to us on your smart speaker. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, sponsored by Moravia and Nimzi Insights. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback. So until next time, please visit online at www.globallyspeakingradio.com.